It's now my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today. Katrina Majuli is a PhD candidate in the Environmental Sciences Studies and Policy Program at UO, with a focus in English. At, uh, with a focus in English, she earned her MA in English in 2020 and an MA in Environmental Studies in 2016, both from the UO. Her BA in English and Writing, uh, with a writing minor, is from OSU in 2012. Katrina's research interests include environmental humanities, feminist science studies, environmental ethics, natural resources and environmental policy, popular culture and media, visual media, digital humanities, and environmental education. Among her plentiful honors are a 2021 Wayne Morse Graduate Research Fellowship, a 2018-19 fellowship from the UO Sustainability Fellowship Program for Community Engaged Learning, and the 2017-18 Jane Campbell Crone Graduate Fellowship in Literature and Environment from the English Department. Katrina is a 2021-22 Oregon Humanity Center Dissertation Fellow. Her project, as you see here, is titled Managing Life's Future Species Essentialism and Evolutionary Normativity in Conservation Policy, Practice, and Imaginaries. Please join me in welcoming Katrina and Julie. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, everyone. Um, well, I'm going to start off my talk today um, by introducing all of you um, to one of the central figures um, in the chapter of my dissertation that I will be looking at today. This is um, Elizabeth Ann, who came into the world on December 10th in 2020. This is the first ever cloned US endangered species, a black-footed ferret. I'll show you a short little video about her. Meet this cute little blast from the past, Elizabeth Ann. She is the first ever US endangered species to be cloned. The black-footed ferret was created from the frozen cells of another ferret named Willa, who died more than 30 years ago in 1988. Willa's remains were frozen in the early days of DNA technology, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had Elizabeth Ann carried into the world by a domestic ferret. Elizabeth Ann's now being raised at the federal government's black-footed ferret breeding facility in Fort Collins, Colorado. Her birth was the culmination of a seven-year effort between U.S. Fish and Wildlife, the San Diego Zoo, and a biotechnology nonprofit, Revive and Restore. Cloning could eventually bring back other extinct species, including the passenger pigeon and the woolly mammoth. As for Elizabeth Ann, she may look cuddly, but scientists say she is feisty and ready to fend for herself. Ferrets are usually released back into the wild, but she'll stay in Colorado to be studied along with her future siblings, soon to be additional clones of Willa. This is Inside Edition Digital. All right, so creatures like Elizabeth Ann, I think are really interesting for us to sort of think with um, in the context of conservation. And some questions in particular, I think that are really interesting. Um, one thing um, to think about um, in particular, right, is that clones, right, are not exactly um, identical copies, and I'll talk about this a bit more later in my talk, um, is that Elizabeth Ann also carries domestic ferret mitochondrial DNA. And so one thing to think about about her is that we can ask, is she therefore an interspecies hybrid? Um, and in the context of conservation, we can then ask, should hybrids then receive equal protections um, under the Endangered Species Act? And so I'll kind of dig into this a little bit more um, later in my talk. Um, and so this brings up things like the species problem. So in the context of conservation, um, species are 
the most commonly used unit for marking biodiversity. They're often talked about as kind of used as a proxy unit um, for identifying biodiversity um, out in the field. They're also the most widely accepted unit um, for ev identifying evolution. Um, and they were initially selected um, to anchor conservation policy primarily because they're seen as really recognizable, right? You go outside, right, and you see, okay, that's an oak tree, right? Everyone can, for the most part, agree that we see an oak tree when we go out there. Um, but this gets really complicated um, when we talk to you know, scientists, right? There are around, there are over 26 definitions of species that are currently in use. Right, and scientists can't actually agree on one specific definition of species. We also know that species are constantly evolving, right? They're always in flux, um, and where you end up drawing the lines between species can actually make a really big difference. So one example of this, right, is that if you use the phylogenetic species concept, for example, rather than biological species concept, um, it's been shown that this can result in 49% more species when you use that on the same group of organisms, right? So you can imagine that um, it, based on the kind of lumped category of species rather than the split category of species, this ends up being potentially a lot more um, vulnerable groups of species than the prior lumped groups. So for one example, right, we have the mouse lemur of Madagascar um, was once believed to be a monotypic genus, so meaning the genus of mouse lemurs only had one species within that group. So until the late 1970s, um, with DNA analysis and then emphasis on the uh, phylogenetic species concept, the species numbers have been growing rapidly, right? And right now, there are currently 25 believed species of mouse lemurs, right? Um, and this has kind of led to um, a lot of people concerned, a lot of criticisms of potential taxonomic inflation, right? Are we actually seeing, um, you know, real, are these real species that we're identifying in the world? Um, or are people just being really optimistic, right? Um, uh, and then what kind of comes along with this, right, is that when we have a lot of these new categorizations of species, a lot more of these species end up being red listed, right? All of those mouse lemur species that I've noted, right, these are all red listed species, right? They are all identified as being um, species of concern. And that original large group of mouse lemurs, when they are a monotypic genus, we weren't concerned about them initially, right? Now we're all concerned. So what does this mean for policy, right? In the context of policy, we usually simplify the problem, right? And we rely on very popular views of species as very clearly bounded entities. This is a much more essentialist view of species. Um, in the context of the Endangered Species Act here in the United States, um, we define species, so this is kind of pulled directly from the Endangered Species Act of 1973. They define it as, the term species includes any subspecies of fish or wildlife or plants, any distinct population segment of any species of vertebrate fish or wildlife which interbreeds when mature. And so this is loosely following the biological species concept, which focuses on interbreeding, so sexual, um, sexual reproduction which overlooks um, a lot of really well-documented cases of viable hybridization that happens, right? And I will say notably, however, the term is never really clearly defined in the Endangered Species Act. This is as good as it gets. This is, this is the only definition that appears in the entire policy. But these distinctions really do have consequences. So in 1983, there was a prioritization protocol that was added to the Endangered Species Act. And so they rank from first to last um, in priority 
monotypic genera. So that mouse lemur, right, when it was a monotypic genus, would have been top priority if it was in the United States, right? Species, then subspecies, and then distinct population segments. I will note that technically they say subspecies and distinct population segments are supposedly of the same rank, but if there's any kind of concern between the two, if there, you know, any conflict, they do say that distinct population segments are of last, last priority. Right, so what this means, right, is that if we then decide that a subspecies then will change rank to being a species, it will change its prioritization, right? So, so this means that our species concepts really do matter, right? Um, what, what actually, um, how we actually draw those lines really do matter in the context of policy. They really do matter um, for, those, for those actual organisms out in the wild and how we, um, how we will protect them. In addition, right, if we actually admitted, right, to the public that species are super complicated and that biologists, taxonomists can't agree, right, on what species even are, it would bring uncertainty to the entire endeavor, right? If we don't know what species actually are, right, what are we really protecting? Um, and so from a legal standpoint, we have to kind of assume that species are really stable, right? And so in this sense then, um, our kind of legal assumption is that we kind of stand, it stands outside of um, scientific consensus, right? That, you know, scientists know that species are in flux in a lot of ways, they blur on their boundaries, right? Um, but from a legal standpoint, right, we have to assume they're stable. And this view corroborates with more folk essentialist perceptions, right? And so in a folk essentialist formulation, right, we assume that biological species are essentially manifestations of underlying natures that are shared by all members of a species, right? So essentially that species are carrying innate traits that are distinguishing them from all others. And what's important about this, right, is that, um, you know, despite the fact that for the most part, all of us, you know, when we're young, um, we go through our biology classes as youths, right? We learn about, you know, evolution. We, you know, we learn that species change. People still believe that species identities and boundaries are fixed, right? And we make everyday decisions based on that fact. And I think this is particularly evident in the context of human boundaries, right? We really think that the human species boundary is very, very fixed, right? Um, and so that appears really regular. So the context is Robert and Bayless um, article that I'm actually um, citing here. They're actually talking about this in the context of human interspecies chimera research, right? That, you know, people, you know, get really concerned when they think about, you know, human interspecies chimera research. They don't want to imagine humans being potentially blended with other species. Um, and so, and I think we can really draw those same kind of concerns, those, those things also appear, right? Those concerns also appear in the context of other species research as well. And so what I'll also add to this issue is that because species are also identified through conservation as something of value and worth protecting, the boundaries also then take on a normative, normative nature, right? They need to be policed in order to be protected. Um, and so what I'm kind of identifying here that I think is really essential is that there's sort of a range of different normative and moral um, issues that are kind of intersecting and engaging with one another. So we have on the one hand, right, the kind of moral urgency of the crisis discipline, right? So conservation biology and conservation work is very much a crisis discipline, right? We're in a world in crisis right now. You know, biodiversity is disappearing, right? We need to do something about it. Then we have this kind of um, normative uh, sort of 
sense of rightness that appears with species identity. And then we also have the moral tenor of law, right, um, with, uh, with conservation policy. All of these things are kind of reinforcing and working together. And I think these sort of, all these things come together and they indicate that what might initially seem from like a policy or a public perspective, the idea of species concepts that initially might be like a matter of fact, right, is actually deeply an ethical issue. So where my dissertation comes in here is that I'm really interrogating the materiality of species concepts and the normative understandings of evolution um, and how they're kind of operationalized <coughs> through conservation policy and then actualized and in conservation practice. So things that I'm looking at in particular are um, the US Fish and Wildlife Service and the Endangered Species Act of 1973 and the work that they do with service partners. So addressing, um, looking uh, at their public and policy documents, species recovery plans and their outreach materials. But I'm also interested in um, broader creative and speculative imaginaries of species futures. So my dissertation also looks at things like art installations, pop-up books and popular um, science writing as well. So I'm tracing um, the following threads through what I'm seeing as these kind of ethically implicated feedback loops that are developing between um, conservation policy, practice, and the public. So essentialist understandings of species, the narratives of genetic purity and hybridity, the human role in the evolution of other species, and then concepts of futurity or the future of life itself. Um, and why I'm really interested in these different threads is that I feel like the different ways of understanding each, right, different value systems that kind of emerge from each of these ultimately result in the production of materially specific species realities. Right? They can bring into being very particular species futures while ultimately preventing others from coming into being at the same time. I also um, am incorporating into my dissertation a speculative methodology as well, asking questions like what species possibilities might emerge at the margins and in the fallout of human conservation efforts? Um, what unexpected evolutionary agency exists in spite of command and control conservation methods? So my dissertation chapters, one, the introduction, kind of thinking about the science and philosophy of the species problem, as I kind of introduced here. Um, the first chapter addressing um, how policy becomes real, looking at U.S. conservation and the age of the Endangered Species Act. Um, and in this chapter, particularly, I'm interested in the species that are kind of boundary-crossing species, um, ones that um, kind of push back against uh, the concepts of purity in particular, so species that hybridize more regularly than others. Um, so one particular case that I'm very interested in here in the Pacific Northwest um, is the case of the spotted owl and the barred owl, and the case of um, the sparred owl that is appearing, and sort of how that is kind of causing problems um, for, for conservationists mm -hmm. in the area. So that's one case study that I look at in that chapter. Um, my second chapter um, is interested in um, biotechnology um, and kind of how that is changing some of the conversations and conservation right now. I will focus on that chapter today, so I'll kind of skim over that a little bit right now. My third chapter is what I'm looking at more of the speculative material um, and more broader imaginaries. I'm looking at um, a lot more creative content in this particular chapter, um, imagining uh, what potential futures um, might emerge um, in, in the future. And then my um, conclusion is considering what are different ways that um, conservationists are kind of pushing back against um, the kind of restrictiveness of policy right now, um, particularly imagining um, 
some, there are many different um, uh, biologists and conservationists that are interested in ways in which we can actually um, think about conservation work that might consider uh, like hybrid species actually conserving those as well. And so kind of work that's doing that, those types of, um, that type of conservation work as well. And so then my, also my creative project that I'm kind of incorporating and dispersing throughout my dissertation is my speculative field notes on the Pacific Northwest where I'm um, kind of developing my own sort of species that I'm imagining kind of developing at the margins of conservation work. So I will kind of start here um, and, and spend the rest of my time um, with all of you looking at chapter two. So with this chapter, um, harnessing biotechnology right for conservation is definitely a current hot topic, right, internationally. Um, and I, but I think this also, it's kind of a very much an evolution manipulating tool, right? And I think it opens up a lot of different areas of inquiry into not only like species being, right, but also the human role in non-human evolution and also how we're envisioning species futures um, more broadly. So questions that I'm asking in this chapter, right, are, you know, can species identity be so easily linked to genetic information, right? If a threatened species genome is edited for adaptive capabilities, um, how do government agencies and biotech companies frame their work to the public and how are they justifying this type of intervention? Um, does the biotech conservation turn have the potential to shift conservation practice from a primarily crisis justified focus on immediate action to a more far-sighted concern with the cascading fallout of fundamentally ethical decisions? Right, so I'm interested in does this reorient conservation to a bit more of a long view um, than this, this sort of immediate crisis, um, crisis focus that we have right now? And then I'm also interested if there's room in it, room for more of a species and organismal agency in light of the kind of human control and intervention and evolutionary processes. So philosopher Christopher Preston has suggested that um, bioengineered organisms' genomes might retain a kind of spontaneous agency through mutations or a way of escaping the intent of the engineer. And I'm interested in thinking about how this might play out in different case studies. So one aspect of this chapter, I look at some broader the areas of the broader conversation, thinking about major players like the nonprofit Revive and Restore, and then the International Union for the Conservation of Nature um, recently put out an assessment um, that was really kind of influential in the conversation as well. Also looking at some of the debates in the academic literature, though I will say this is like a booming <laughs> conversation. So it's you know just getting some of the primary threads um, is what I'm interested in here. And so looking in particular at how are they talking about species? Are they talking about species? Do they recognize species as fraught or important concepts? How are they framing the human role in shaping non-human evolution? Are they focusing on those short-term crisis issues or looking at long-term solutions? And what kinds of ethical concerns are identified as necessary to address for biotech conservation projects? And I'm going to focus primarily today on the case studies, and that's obviously the most exciting part. I think the part that you'll all be most interested in thinking about um, with me. So the specific projects that I look at are the Transgenic American Chestnut, or Darling 58, and then, as I've introduced to you already briefly, the Black-Footed Ferret clone, Elizabeth Ann. So the questions I ask here are, you know, how are these projects justified? What language is used? How are the species concepts deployed or not? Um, how is human intervention justified specifically? Um, then will all the um, genetically altered individual organisms count as members of the threatened or endangered species? Why or why not, right? I and mean, what species concepts are deployed to do so, if, if any? 
And then what kinds of ethical concerns are discussed or addressed in the project plans or outreach material, if any, right? Because I think it's interesting to see whether or not they even talk about ethics, right, in these, because um, it's, it's amazing to see, you know, that they don't always do that at all. So, so, um, so I'll kind of start um, start with the American chestnut, give you a little bit of background um, about the tree itself before I get into um, the actual biotech project itself. Um, so, so the American chestnut. Um, is, is listed as critically endangered um, by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. It's listed as endangered in Canada. It's not listed in the US. I have not found um, clear evidence as to why it's the case. I definitely have some speculations on this. I can answer questions on that in the Q&A if you would like me to speculate with you on that. But um, So the tree is essentially functionally extinct. Um, so due to the arrival of the chestnut blight in the early 20th century, so it arrived with um, chestnut trees intended for orchards. Um, so with Chinese and Japanese chestnuts that are um, naturally resistant to blight. So they evolved, co-evolved with the, with the blight. Um, and it was the dominant tree species in the eastern forests of the United States prior to the blight. So very much a keystone species in that area um, used, you know, it was a food species for many, for many different um, animals in the region. And it also was a very economically valuable tree. So. The, um, the lumber was used for a lot of different products um, and was very resistant um, to rot. So used in a lot of like homes um, for different, uh, different uses. And then of course the chestnuts themselves, right, um, were very valuable. So, so the Transgenic American Chestnut Project, right, so what it actually is, um, is it's the American chestnut plus a gene for oxalate oxidase taken from wheat. And so essentially what this um, gene does, is it breaks down oxalic acid, which is what the blight uses to attack trees. And so what's really interesting actually about this, um, this strategy is that it actually allows for coexistence um, between the, uh, the chestnut trees and the blight, um, because the blight is still, still actually able to um, feed off of dead tissue. It just can't kill more tree tissue to, um, to then eat more. So right. So any, any tree tissue that dies naturally, it can still feed off of that, it just can't kill more. So it's kind of, they assume that potentially it might prevent the blight from um, evolving further to you know, create new strategies. It's the hope at least. Right, so this project is currently under review by the USDA APHIS um, for, the, for getting non-regulated status. So here's the image of that here. It'll then be going um, under review by the EPA, then the FDA, so it has a long re re regulation process to see if it can get actually released. Final decision is estimated to occur um, in August 2023. Um, so their petition includes a pretty extensive analysis um, of environmental interactions between the transgenic leaf litter, the transgenic chestnuts, um, and, and the ecosystems in the area, so with with bees, with, um, with other insects, um, with other animals, right? So they've done, they've done very, very extensive research um, to see you know, if there'll be any potential um, problematic interactions. The plan also will allow for natural patterns of inheritance, right? So their assumption is that there will be natural wild type chestnuts still remaining in the population, right, conceivably. Right, and so I'll point out this means there's no gene drive inheritance. So meaning that um, they're not trying to skew inheritance of this particular gene. They're going to let it naturally, um, you know, uh, get into the wild population. 
So implying sort of a hope for natural evolutionary patterns of selection um, to let this happen, rather than this kind of continued human intervention um, for this gene to kind of get into the population. Okay, and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna show just a short little clip um, from, this is uh, William Powell, um, is, he was he's the lead on the transgenic project um, from the State University of New York. <coughs> and so I just wanted to kind of listen to some of the language and the way that he talks about a contrast between the transgenic project um, and the, um, the crossbreeding project. So there was another project that worked on some uh, resistance to the blight. Um, that was a Chinese chestnut um, cross with the American chestnut project. So we'll just jump to spot that I want. Okay, so right now there's actually two programs that are having some success at making a blight-resistant American chestnut tree. There are a breeding program and there's a transgenic program. I am involved with the transgenic program. And I'm gonna kinda do a quick comparison of the two. Each of them are viable programs and each of them probably will have some levels of success they each have their own um, pros and cons though. So the breeding program, what they're doing is they're crossing American chestnut to Chinese species of chestnut that are naturally resistant to blight, because that's where the blight comes from. And then they back cross to American to try to regain all the American traits. Okay. When they do this, they end up with a tree that's 1 16th Chinese, and of course 15 16th American, which sounds really good, and it, it is pretty good. But I want to do a little illustration for you. Let's think of the chestnut and chestnut genome as a book. Okay? And let's say that book is uh, filled with words, and the words represent the genes in the chestnut. Okay? We know about how many genes are in chestnut, and they would fill about a 180-page book. So if you're 116 Chinese, what that means, about 11 pages, or close to 3,000 words in that book, are from Chinese and Chinese. Now that might not be important because we have a lot of duplicate gene, genes in the two, but it might be important if this is a, a critical plot line or something like that. And the reason why is important with Chinese and American chestnut is because Chinese chestnut has actually been bred for thousands of years as an orchard tree. American chestnut is a wild timber type tree. And there's a lot of traits that we don't want from the Chinese chestnut. So the problem here is you gotta then breed out all those traits you don't want, all right? That can be done. It just takes a lot, a lot of work, a lot of selection. Let's look at what you do with transgenics. Now, let's follow up that book analogy. I'm gonna take one passage out of that book, or one sentence. Uh, it's actually a sentence from Thoreau's Walden. I kinda like that because he really likes chestnuts and that. And um, I'm gonna use that as an example. We can put in just a few genes at a time using a natural genetic en engineer called Agrobacterium tumefaciens. This is a bacteria that in the wild moves genes around in plants. So what scientists have done is basically tamed this bacteria so it moves genes in that we want to move in. So what we're doing is we're only moving two to four genes into the tree. So we're not making a big change, we're making a very small change to the tree. And now we don't have to go back and try to get rid of genes that we put in there that we don't really want. Okay, so that's an advantage with transgenics. I knew you would like that, right, Gordon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Right. So, so in you know, in his analogy here, right. So he's contrasting, of course, you know, using the book analogy, which is definitely one, you know, as 
appears quite often, right, using, using this kind of literary analogy in the context of genetics. Um, so using this to, to, to definitely boost up transgenics as the better strategy um, than, than this crossbreeding approach, contrasting yeah, 3,000 words or genes to two to four, just makes it seem obviously this is the better approach, right? And then also, you know, definitely, you know, pointing out right, the undesirable traits, um, saying, you know, there's thousands of years of intentional breeding um, as an orchard tree, um, kind of stressing that this is somehow, um, this is not good, right? This sort of the human intervention of that thousands of years is somehow um, undesirable. Right, and I still think there's definitely questions we can ask here. So what are we identifying as desirable about the American chestnut? Um, there's, there's a lot of things that kind of come up in this talk as well that I'm not emphasizing here. Um, he brings up cultural heritage very regularly um, in the context of the talk. Um, so, so there's things we can kind of, kind of bring up there and think about. Um, he emphasizes the height of the tree, the majesty of the tree um, in comparison to Chinese chestnut as well. So there's, there's definitely um, a lot of like cultural questions that can be brought up um, in, in that context too. So another quote that I wanted to pull here is from the American Chestnut Foundation. So that's one of the primary partners that, um, that the um, State University of New York that worked with um, on the transgenic project. Um, so so they, they bring up um, on their website that the resulting progeny, so the cross between the transgenic and the wild type chestnut, they say will be essentially 100% American chestnut because none of the American chestnut genome has been removed or replaced. Right, and so I think this is another sort of really interesting kind of way in which there's sort of this sort of in linguistic sort of maneuvering, right, going on um, in, in order to um, establish this transgenic program as being um, superior, right, in a lot of ways to, to this other, to the, um, the crossbreeding program, right, and this idea that sort of additions without subtractions are somehow acceptable to retain sort of species identity in this context. Um, what is 100% American? I don't know, right? Um, I think there's some interesting questions we could ask um, ask here about that. Um, another thing that I want to point out, and I, you might have um, caught that in, in what he talks about too as he introduced the transgenic um, project too, is he, he notes that the agrobacterium is a natural, um, natural engineer, right? So this question of how novel is transgenics really? Um, and so this is a quote that's pulled from the actual petition um, for the uh, petition for the non-regulated status um, for Darling 58. So he says that they say in the um, in their petition, right? The idea this may be the first transgenic organism in a natural setting is being challenged by recent research, suggesting that about seven percent of all dicot species may have been naturally transformed their evolutionary past with DNA from Agrobacterium. Right, so there's definitely a really big emphasis they're trying to make here on the sort of natural process of horizontal gene transfer, right? That, that transgenics is actually very <coughs> natural, right? So where's the problem, right? And this goes for the CRISPR-Cas9 tools as well. So this is the other kind of primary tool that's being used for um, gene editing. Um, it's another naturally occurring mechanism. Um, it's originally intended just to cut DNA um, rather than, than make you know, edits. Uh, but but it's also naturally occurring, right? And so many of these um, many of these scientists, right, are using this kind of naturalness factor um, to really emphasize, like it's okay, right? It's all natural, right? So so we should be okay with, with this process, right? 
And so I think this logic is also being reflected, kind of this growing sort of widespread acceptance that hybridization um, and gene sharing, right, through processes like horizontal gene, gene transfer, just they're a lot more common than we originally assumed. So I think the more that we're learning about genomics in general, um, so the more, the more species that were, you know, sequencing their genomes, the more we're actually seeing this sort of everywhere in the living world, right? So I think essentially what we're learning is that like wherever there's DNA, we're basically sharing it, right? So humans, we're sharing it, you know, with you know our microbiomes, like it's it's just happening everywhere. Um, so so that's that's definitely that that's I'm seeing cropping up quite regularly in the context of these biotechnology conversations is that they're using this as a way to justify it, right? So so essentially the question becomes, right? If novelty isn't the problem, um, so and perhaps right this kind of essentialist genetic identity then isn't isn't necessarily the problem either, right? If we're sharing this kind of like genetic information right across species boundaries as well, right? Where's the problem, right? And so I think this is kind of a logical move that's being made by proponents of biotech solutions, right? That are using CRISPR as well. I think it's it's presenting an interesting loosening up of folk essentialist conceptions of species that I'm. I'm really interested in that that sort of logical move that's happening um, in a various different areas, um, but it's but it's definitely happening in the context of the um, transgenic American chestnut. Okay, so let's get to the black-footed ferret case study as well. So I'll make sure we have time to question. So, so to give a little background on the black-footed ferret, um, so so this is listed as endangered in the U.S. So this is listed under the um, Endangered Species Act here. So they live in the Midwest, um, native grassland. Um, and so this species was actually believed to be extinct in the mid 20th century, but was rediscovered in 1981. And so believed to be extinct, meaning so very, very small population was rediscovered. And so they were actually taken into captivity to try and um, reboost their numbers. Um, and so all the current black-footed ferrets in existence are actually descended from seven founders. And so this means that their genetic diversity um, one, it's very narrow, right? And so they are continually very closely managed. Um, and so this is a hyper-specialist species, meaning that they both feed on prairie dogs as well as live in their vacated burrows, which is part of what makes them particularly vulnerable, right? So that's exactly why they were so endangered in the Midwest, is that, you know, people were, you know, uh, settlers were moving into the area, you know, taking, you know, trying to kill off all the prairie dogs in particular, as well as, you know, creating farmland there. That, that's what made the black-footed ferret so vulnerable. Another one of their primary threats is disease. So um, there's a plague that affects both black-footed ferrets and prairie dogs and spreading through fleas and through predation. So um, a particular thing to think about here with prairie dogs is, or with the black-footed ferrets, is their hypermanagement of reproduction. So they're heavily managed through a species survival plan that's developed um, through the American Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and that's um, kind of managed across six different captive breeding facilities. Um, you know, using a stud book, right, they're tracking the genetic ancestry of every single ferret, right, mating optimized, you know, in the captive breeding programs. Right, and under their recovery plan, like they're planning to have like 80% of founder genetic diversity has to be retained for at least 25 years is like their main plan. And I would say this is kind of a key point is that <clears throat> their plan in 2013 did not identify the genetic diversity as an imminent threat under their prioritization protocol with their continued management. And no potential biotech avenues as management options were mentioned in the entire 157 page document. So, no biotech was ever mentioned in the recovery plan. 
I combed it. Um, so, so that was never mentioned there. Nonetheless, right, in 2013, um, someone from, you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service contacted the nonprofit Ryven Restore to, like, consider biotech options. So this is definitely what's happening very much kind of on the sly, I would say, like outside of the public view, um, which I think is very important to point out because, you know, recovery plans are, you know, put under public review. Public is like, you know, can have comment, like there's a comment period for recovery plans and et cetera. So, um, so kind of doing things behind the scenes like this, I think is really important to pay attention to. Um, and in the permit um, for, for getting, you know, to actually do the biotech project, the primary thing that's mentioned here is disease. So not actually genetic rescue. So disease is identified as the imminent threat there. Um, so this was in their permit, they list phase one as a multi-phase process to generate disease resistant black-footed ferrets. And their permit was awarded in 2018. However, all outreach content frames Elizabeth Ann as a clone for genetic rescue. So, so I think there's definitely, there's a lot of interesting things kind of happening with this project, a lot of like inconsistencies. I'm still trying to get access to their permit and to like the public, because there was a public comment period for the permit, but I can't get any access to any of the content, which I should be able to, so I'm still under a request period for this. So, so that I've, I've got some problems with this particular project, because it should be in the public view a little bit more than it is. Um, so, so anyway, um, so, so the content of Elizabeth Ann, um, so how, how this project works, right, is that her history is she comes from the Willa cells, as the video we watched earlier. Um, these are cells that were cryopreserved in the San Diego Zoo's um, frozen zoo. They were cryopreserved in 1988. And sort of how clone projects work is that they start with um, you know, cells from the black-footed ferret, but these cells have to be then placed into you know, a denucleated um, egg, right? So from a domestic ferret. So kind of bringing together you know, genetic information from two different, two different species. So what this means, right, so you can see this image here, right? is that in the end, we have the cloned ferret has nuclear DNA, right, from the black-footed ferret, and mitochondrial DNA of the domestic ferret. So we have, we have DNA coming from, you know, two different species. So our question in the end, right, is that, what, is Elizabeth, what does Elizabeth Ann count as? Does she count as a black-footed ferret in the end? Right, so, <clears throat> so Dragon Carrie Freeze's work on, um, on cloned animals, she does a lot of work on cloned endangered species, right? She's pointing to the significance or insignificance, right, of mitochondrial DNA as a key determinant, right, of species membership for cloned organisms, right? Um, it's mitochondrial DNA is only inherited from an organism's mother, right, which has made it useful tool for phylogenetic studies in the past. Um, so what this means then is that because um, she has domestic ferret mitochondrial DNA. Elizabeth Ann's one, never gonna be released into the wild, and only her descendants through her male progeny are going to be considered fully black-footed ferrets. So she's fitting into this category of females don't count, <laughs> um, <laughs> alas. So while they call her a black-footed ferret in all of the publicity documents, um, she will never be released, right, into the wild. 
she will also, you know, she's also going to be guarded very closely in part because she is so, you know, valuable um, genetically. But, but her male progeny, um, their genetics are going to be a little more valuable, right, because they won't be passing on that, you know, unvaluable mitochondrial DNA. So some questions about her, right? So some quotes that I think are interesting, right, that I've kind of pulled. Um, so everything about Elizabeth Ann is much bigger than the science behind it. It's much bigger than helping ferrets. It's about whether biotech can become part of the mainstream conversation of conservation. So I think questions like, what's the real goal of the study, right? Was it selected um, for publicity purposes, I think is a big question we should ask. There's definite conservation benefits, but I think based on the recovery plan and their documents, I think the imminent threat of genetic collapse seems a little bit questionable. Um, there's also some interesting um, content about selecting her mate, right? Um, the breeders, of course, are interested in the mate being a, a gentleman, right? But they're more interested in um, his excellent genes, right? Um, and, you know, while they would like things to be, you know, natural, they, will, of course, will artificially inseminate Elizabeth Ann if necessary. And so I think there's, you know, some interesting conversations we can have about, you know, what kind of organismal re reproductive agency might exist in such a hypermanaged world, right? And what are the stakes of relinquishing control, right? And what possibilities exist for escaping control? So I think there's also some interesting research that's been done that black-footed ferrets actually do exhibit inbreeding avoidance without management, even though they will not relinquish that control nonetheless. So I think, you know, could we relinquish control? Perhaps, but they, they don't seem willing to do that. So, all right, so, so I wanna you know, make sure we have time for questions. So I'll conclude with some of the main takeaways that I've had so far from, from these case studies. Um, so right now, the emphasis on many biotech solutions are one, being more efficient, um, both like temporally, right? So they are much more, they're much quicker, right, approaches. Um, they also allow for a more precise selection of genetic materials, what they often say, right? Um, and so a species that is closer to the original um, than other potential solutions. So even if this means taking huge taxonomic leaps for genetic <coughs> materials. So I think right, the interesting question of the American chestnut tree, right, is that like, why is an American chestnut tree with a wheat gene somehow more American chestnut than one crossed with a different chestnut tree? I think it's just like a really, it's an interesting brain twister, I think, for us to think about, right? Because here, right, the amount of genetic material seems to be the primary marker of species being, right, location in a phylogenetic tree is somehow less important. Though, of course, we can, we can point out that the, um, the OXO-producing genes do appear in different species other than wheat. Also, the rejection of genetic essentialism for species identity does offer some wiggle room for additions and alterations, which is interesting to consider. Um, and then, while these tools might suggest potential conservation long view perspectives, they're so far only being used in crisis type scenarios. Of course, though I will still point out, I have got my doubts in the black footed ferret case. I think this is definitely something that could still change um, when, these, um, when biotechnology becomes more accepted in conservation. And then, the human intervention is therefore framed as crisis based and therefore necessary, right? Life or death rather than up for debate, which I think is important to point out. Um, some discussion is evident in the black-footed ferris case about the species evolutionary trajectory because of that kind of primary concern over genetic diversity. Um, and then potentially adding resistance to plague, right? I'm still waiting on the additional um, kind of document request to kind of follow up on this. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, um, ethical frameworks are right now primarily risk-based if they're ever addressed at all. 
Um, and particularly because these are usually like required by you know environmental impact statements um, or through the um, petition processes. Um, and I think in some cases the public involvement or oversight is often pretty questionable, especially in the black footed ferret case. There's much more public involvement that was evident in the other case. Okay, all right, well, thank you um, to yeah, my committee and to my chair, Stacey Limo, Oregon Humanities Center, and to you know, other supporters throughout, and I will want to leave the rest of the time for questions. <laughs> <laughs> Questions for Katrina. Well, it's quite obvious to me, maybe this was part of the framework of your talk and it's very intentional, but there appears to be a lot more scope and interest in transgenic solutions or manipulation in the case of the tree rather than the black-footed ferret. I mean, there is, of course, as you uh, outlined, uh, transgenic manipulation involved in the ferret, but it is much slower, it is much more cautious, and I wonder if you could give a reason for this uh, beyond the sort of uh, anthropogenic uh, interest in animals, uh, naming the ferret, of, of, for example, Elizabeth Ann. <laughs> Uh, we, we didn't get a name for the chestnut tree, you know, like Old Sol or something like that. <laughs> uh, but is there something beyond that sort of anthropogenic interest in cute animals? Um, so I guess to clarify your question, just the, from the transgenics yes. part of the question. Yes, from the transgenic part of the question, because it seemed to be a pretty open field in terms mm -hmm. of the American chestnut tree. Yeah. Uh, whereas with the black-footed ferret, there was a lot of tentative, hesitation, caution. You know, can we really do this? What are the ethical implications and so forth? Yeah, well, I think the black-footed ferret case is a little complicated, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think because, well, on the one hand, I would say it's been really hard for me to find clear documentation on that mm -hmm. particular case, which has been a little frustrating um, mm -hmm. because they are not in the public eye in the way they should be, I would uh. say. Um, um, the American Chestnut Project has been very much open with the public from mm -hmm. the get-go, which yeah. has been really, really great to see the way in which they've been really intentionally trying to get the public involved in the project, and, and so that's, Right. You know, but that's been very intentional on their part. Mm -hmm. um, the Blackfooted Ferret Project also, um, yeah, they've, they've got a couple of different aims, I think, which mm -hmm. makes it a little more complicated. So mm -hmm. on, on the one hand, right, it's not a transgenics project in the sense that their goal isn't so much that to bring in a gene from another, mm -hmm. another you know, species sure. in order mm -hmm. to support the ferret in that way. Um, so they're, they're right now, they're just trying to, um, you know, bring back genetic diversity through like dead, you know, old dead, right? Um, individuals in the same species. However, right, their plan in the future with that project is to support resistance to plague. Um, and so the, you know, I didn't get into detail here, but 
The other kind of like background that's happening with that project is that they do have a lot of research going on right now um, with a lot of like mice essentially is what they're working with and building up resistance to plague with mice mm -hmm. and you know seeing if they can perfect mice resistance to the plague and then they're going to translate that resistance mm -hmm. to to the ferrets somehow you know they're going to like use what they learn from the mice mm -hmm. basically um then and then translate that to the, to the ferrets so mm -hmm. so that's that's where i know that they're at so far um mm -hmm. with the kind of the plague aspect oh, okay. of, of the project so there's all totally different. I think that's the one thing with the with biotechnology and conservation in general is that there's just there's so many different kinds of applications, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's sort of a really wide range, right? So cloning is very different, right, from transgenics and the mm -hmm. and the types of what they're trying to do is very yeah. very different kinds of projects. Okay. Um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Uh, <laughs> there's maybe there's different parts of your question. Yes, yes, <laughs> I, I think it does. Uh, I was sort of unclear, uh, and you made it clear that the plague is the real sort of aim here, and <coughs> I was uh, kind of falsely assuming that it had something to do with preservation of black-footed ferrets, and that seemed somewhat questionable because obviously they're not going to be wild. There are some biologists who say we can't have any more wild animals because there's no more wild. Well, so the, the plague, yeah. it's, it's, it's a ferret resistance plague. Yeah. Yeah, so they're trying to save the black-footed ferrets yeah, right. by helping them resi be resistant to plague. Because uh, right now the ferrets mm -hmm. are dying from plague. Uh, yeah. Uh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so essentially they want to yeah, support ferret and, and um, prairie dog resistance to plague. Because um, yeah, right now yeah. they recognize that if they aren't protecting the prairie dogs, mm. they're going to fail fail to save the, the ferrets as well because right. because the being you know ferrets being hyper specialized as they are, yeah. you know, if if something happens to the prairie dogs, you know, the ferrets are going to be doomed as well. Yeah. So so it's kind of a it's sort of a dual sort of project <coughs> in that sense. Yeah. Well thanks for clarifying. I thought yeah. when you said plague you meant, you know, plague via rats to people, etc. Oh yeah. I mean well it is it is technically the same kind of plague actually, which okay. is interesting. But it's but it's just in this context. Yeah, we, we don't have to worry as much about it. Um, okay. <laughs> yes. Um your project seemed to I I, I, I mean to my um, uh, interpretation is that uh, there are two issues. One is the scientific issue. It's uh, whatever evolution process uh, engage the human intervention may actually, I mean, what kind of an outcome it, it will come out without, uh, based on current scientific knowledge. Another issue is uh, based on your moral judgment today, say, is the ethical evaluation the issue is appropriate or not. So the question is, uh, actually, the, you raise two issues. First is about chestnut issue. Certainly, the intervention only target part of a chestnut, American chestnut, but certainly cannot uh, change or revise all the chestnut tree, correct? Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's a only, in the sense, only try to create a maybe called new s s species or maybe a subset of a species. So in that sense, it won't change the whole picture of chestnut even. It's just the, like, a, I mean, any type of genetic uh, intervention maybe just revise the 
maybe not subspecies, but just create maybe something new based on human understanding of this uh, current knowledge. So that's one issue. Second issue is uh, today about, of course, the scientific knowledge is such limited, even people assuming they know everything, but actually they cannot predict many, I mean, outcomes. When, when the intervention is actually, uh, they, they, of course, uh, the it's an ethical issue is, uh, can, it really issue is an ethical issue. The question is, can any person, the ethical concern or normative standards help science? Or actually have nothing to do with science. So maybe, I mean, just based on human, with their limited uh, whatever, I mean, uh, understanding of the current situation, then they, they predict future. But actually, it's, it's not based on science. It's only based on whatever they know, assuming they know, correct? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, no, I think, I mean, that's why I find these issues so interesting, right? Yeah. Is the tension between just the, the ethical concerns and the scientific uncertainty as well, um, and... Uh, I mean, I just I mean I think these issues are so they're so juicy in that yeah. in that sense, and and the it's just it, that's a really hard question to answer, <laughs> I would say, mm -hmm. um, and there's just a lot of tension between ethicists and scientists where you have certain scientists on the one hand trying to assert certainty, yeah. you have a subset of scientists that. Um, all, they, they assert the fact that well we can't f fully know right that we don't we don't we don't actually know what will happen right things might change right um, and and then you have you know then you have a group of ethicists that um, that you know don't necessarily want us to move ahead with this at all right so I think there's that's I think the issue with this sort of biotechnology in general is that there's just a lot of turmoil. I would say in this particular field, um, and no one's really agreeing on anything right now. But a lot of people are steamrolling ahead. I would yeah. say, and it's actually, um, I would say, it's the more you dig into it, the more shocking it is. Actually, what's happening that you don't know is happening, <laughs> um, unfortunately, particularly in um, in like the commercial sectors. Um, and uh, yeah, and what's actually already released um, out there <laughs> um, that we don't know about, um, and they don't necessarily know what's going to happen with. So a lot of like synthetic biology that like people are actually creating, like you know, creating new strands of DNA with additional bases and things like it's just wow. you would be shocked. <laughs> I mean, it's just I, I don't know. It's just kind of amazing the things that are being created right now um, and we just yeah we, we can't know really what's going to happen with it um, and so the range of perspectives on what kind of certainty we can have or can't have um, I think there's no good answers right to it and which is why I think it's just so important to just study and just kind of just pay attention to what's happening um, yeah, I, I don't know if it's a good answer, but I think, yeah, there's no good answers, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. um, so this is kind of a, a question probably that's much further in your project than you are at this point, um, but it strikes me that part of the story you're telling is the Endangered Species Act is reasoning backward from a process of loss of biodiversity, and the term that they latch onto there as a species term that's now becoming much less useful in some ways. And so I guess the question is, if 
Um, if you were tasked with rewriting the Endangered Species Act, <laughs> so that it's more fruitful, like, I'm, it's a hard question. It's yeah, a totally yeah. hard question to yeah. ethics, but like, just what your leaning is. Um, we're not, you know, you're, we're obviously not making you do it, but like, yeah, what yeah. your leaning is, what that, what that concept would look like. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've thought about this, um, and and I and my my response to myself is always like I don't think that's the question that I'm asking, right? In the in the sense that I think I'm more interested in um, how we deal with what we have, of the tools we have available to us. Like how how are how are we responding to those like how are how are how are biologists on the ground dealing with the Endangered Species Act as a tool, right? Um, how are they um, how are they accommodating it or not accommodating? How are they resisting it, um, right? Um, how are they uh, how are they navigating around the, the the corners of it, right? Because I think in some ways, right, it's vagueness, right, um, can can create. Um, holes in which some some biologists use that those like holes right because i think as i pointed out um sort of at the beginning right it's got things like you know um distinct population segments in its um in its uh, definition of species right which a lot of you know biologists use very dis you know cleverly i think in a lot of ways and it's and it's brought up you know people started using terms like evolutionary significant segments is now like a new a new term that started getting used and that's kind of a it's become like a subset of um distinct population segments right um and so they're sort of creating new terms by using the vagueness i think and so i wouldn't say so much maybe that it necessarily has to be rewritten i guess i think hmm. I think maybe it's a matter of um, finding new ways to um, to play with those va the vagueness. I guess <laughs> that's a weird way of, of saying it, right? But I think um, yeah, playing with that, right? And and so that's kind of what I was hoping to do, sort of in the in the conclusion. You know, once I get to that point, is is exploring more about how some you know biologists and conservationists have been thinking about things like. Right, actually creating protocols about like how do we actually address things like hybrid individuals, right? How do, how can we create you know protocols for actually conserving hybrid individuals, right? Because right now they become like this awkward gray area where it's like, well, what do we even do with those? Like, what is you know what is the what does ESA do about those, right? Like so for example, right in the context of you know like the Florida panthers, for example, like for conserving those, they were extremely inbred, you know, they were basically gonna die out because they were so inbred. And, you know, what we, what, you know, the US Fish and Wildlife Service ended up having to do was bringing in another subspecies of panthers from Texas, the Texas pumas, and like bringing some in. And it was a very intentional process where they had to actually make sure that like those hybrid, basically, offspring were going to be protected under the ESA. And so it had to be like a really intentional process to assure that they're being protected. And so finding new ways maybe that instead of having to go through a really like arduous process to assure hybrid individuals are going to be protected under like the policies, right? Maybe we could like assure ahead of time 
we have like a way in which those are those individuals are going to be protected we don't have to like you know do that process ahead of time right so so finding maybe new ways in which we can like be more flexible right because i think one of the things that makes me interested about like the bardell spotted out problem right is that people were really concerned about like you know the way in which maybe spotted owls are interbreeding with barred owls as like a you know evolutionary way of like they're responding to the fact that like you know maybe like this is our future right maybe we're like you know trying to save ourselves by interbreeding and but like the way in which you know the u.s fish and wildlife service actually responded to those comments in the environmental impact statement as they said like under the endangered species act you know genetic continuation doesn't count as protecting a species. It's like, okay, well, maybe the, maybe we need to think about different ways of protecting a species, you know? So, so I think so there could be like, considering like some new types of like flexibility, especially under the kinds of like, species are gonna be moving more, right? You know, climate change, right, you know? So, so thinking about like, what are, what are new ways to protect species, especially when we consider species are just not as like discreet as we thought they were, right? So I guess we're over time, sorry. <laughs> no, if people want to keep talking, that's fine with, with us. So I, I, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the status of ethics in the project. So on the one hand, you, you've spoken about the kind of absence of uh, discussion of ethics in some of these cases, which you've also given us to believe is kind of strategic. Mm -hmm. It's being omitted. But you've also suggested that there are certain biologists who have a very rigorous line about this, and, and I would assume that they have a kind of ethical justification for that. Mm -hmm. My question has more to do with you, where you are on this question. And you said um, there's all this stuff going on that we don't know about. <laughs> yeah. And that suggests to me that you have an ethical qualm. Mm -hmm. And the account you've given, on partial, partially, I think, the aim of this project is a kind of one of um, uncovering and anatomizing complexities that are neglected, a more descriptive project. But at other times, you speak in such a way that it seems to me that you have a kind of there, you have certain ethical investments um, that you haven't been entirely explicit about, but that come up periodically. And I, I wanted to know if you could be a little more explicit about what, if you have ethical investments around this, what they are. Yeah. I mean, I would say, I mean, like the, the spotted owl, spotted owl example that I just brought up, I would say that I was working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, when that uh, environmental impact statement came out actually um so that was back in what 2013 and that affected me very deeply um and it was during that time that i i started well i was noticing the ways in which the biologists that i worked with were very very much like you know very tender with the native species but very like just you know, they would just talk very casually about the way they would slaughter certain birds in their backyard, you know, the non-native species, and just in very, just, you know, I will not describe to you how they would describe it to me, because it was very gruesome and horrible, and it was just like, kind of, it was really shocking to me, just the contrast, and, um, and so, 
you know, then reading the, that particular impact statement, this is exactly why I came back to school, actually. Um, and this is why that's, that particular impact statement was kind of where my dissertation kind of grew out of. Um, because I, I got the sense that I felt that policy was, was restricting how, uh, in like certain ways, was restricting how conservation biologists were able to work. In, a, in certain ways, that there was just something was happening there. I felt I felt strongly that something was happening there that that even if they wanted to, right, they weren't able to actually even protect the species they cared about and consider even the evolutionary trajectories about, of the species they cared about in ways that you know they couldn't even be flexible, right? There, you know, there was just because just like just reading that that particular comment on there was like. The ESA says this is how we have to do it. Period. Like it was just done, and I was like, nope. There's something. Something's happening that just doesn't feel right to me. It's too cut and dried, right? You know, like you just, and that's just not how the world is, right? And that's not how species are. There's more happening there, right? And so, and that I feel very strongly about that, right? And it's just you know, and these, you know, these species matter to me, right? You know, and so, so that's kind of at least that sort of that feels very ethically meaningful to me and so and so that's kind of where I came from to this project and that's part of why I have my sort of the creative part of my project is part of where I can kind of like meaningfully I feel like can explore sort of like these species so the sparred owl is actually one of the species that I'm exploring in my speculative project. Can you talk a little bit about the speculative side of the project? Yeah. I'm very interested in that. Yeah so so part of it is kind of is imagining um sort of what happens um, in the fallout of conservation work. And so, so, so just to, and I'll use the Spardell as an example. And so my kind of, my imagining there is that, so kind of what's happening in the context of the Bardell Spotted Owl is that in order to protect the Spotted Owl, um, biologists are now killing Bardells um, to basically prevent them from competing with one another. Um, but barred owls will interbreed with spotted owls and create viable young called spart owls, um, and so and so, which will continue to you know interbreed, right? They you know they are not, um, you know they they will they'll create you know create viable babies after that. So there's no no kind of like end right to, to that, and so in my kind of you know speculative you know space, I'm kind of imagining that by actually killing barred owls. We're not stopping barred owls from coming in, right? This is kind of a never-ending sort of process, but by killing barred owls, we're actually potentially making it more likely that spotted owls will actually interbreed with barred owls um, and create actually a space in which spotted owls and barred owls will actually overlap more. Um, so that's my imagination there. And so in the in my creative space, basically what I'm doing is I am um, essentially kind of following sort of the naturalist space of you know watercolor field notes. And so, doing watercolor illustrations of these species, um, and you know, writing field notes and sort of creative, creative um, interactions with these different species. So, so yeah, so there'll be a few different um, installations of that throughout the throughout the work. Um, so yeah, kind of speculative works, thinking, imagining into the future of you know what will happen right in the context of like. The kind of work that we do right in conservation, and what will species, what do species do in response? Right, to the work that we do. Yeah. I think that there's really an interesting tension here of 
not just the ones you've described, but the, the uh, biologists who do each other, and um, shall we say um, your disagreements with uh, certain biologists and so forth. The, but the framework, I think, comes back to what Bert mentioned, and that is the ESA in 1973. Um, there are continued references to it because, of course, it is a law. But it's a law which is now a half a century old. And a law is essentially a legislative product produced through a political process. And of course, our Constitution is the same thing. But that doesn't make it perfect. And the longer time goes on, the more science uh, either evolves in a different direction or gets ahead or begins to qualify uh, anything that anybody imagined in 1972-73. And I think that that is a real tension. And I'm not sure that you know I can charge you or anybody else with rewriting a new Endangered Species Act. But clearly, using that as kind of a baseline is skewing any sort of uh, what we would call forward progress or even movement in a positive direction. Yeah, well, I'd say everyone's, everyone's very scared about opening up touching that because it's like, it is the only environmental policy with teeth, as everyone says, right? It's like, don't touch it, because if you touch it, then it's just letting everyone, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, that's what they're saying. I have something on a totally yeah. different go, go topic. Can go I ahead. go ahead? I've been go trying ahead. to ask a yeah. question yeah. that yeah. 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 Sorry. Um, so, <laughs> last night we had a very different talk about uh, Shakespeare, which seems completely out of place here, except for the <laughs> fact that, but the, one, of the, one of her quotes, Catherine Schwartz, she said, plague tells us that ideas cannot live without bodies because of the spectacle of all of these dead bodies and the plague. And here it strikes me um, the opposite, this question of can bodies live without ideas? And what I mean by that is it seems like there's such a kind of genetic and material essentialism going on with the biotechnology in which an individual creature, as long as it's genetically right, then it is a viable, um, a capable, independent unit. And that's so weird to me because animals have cultures. And like how, not only is there no wild to put them back into at this point, but if they don't have all of their kinship networks and cultures and if they don't know how to do things, I mean, all of this information now, even about trees communicating and helping each other, or yeah. fungi supposedly have 50 words that they communicate. And so it's such a weird essentialism, like the human, like we're going to create this one creature and it's gonna be this thing. Okay, so it's not good enough to go back into the wild because it's not genetically good enough. But yeah. like, so does culture, does culture and learning and community do all of those more mushy words in the genetic context like even come up in in the evaluations or are they sort of I mean we have this idea we can control everything that's material but what about all of that that other stuff it's it's changing I think it's changing um, so I know so like for for example revive and restore is also the um, the nonprofit that's leading the passenger pigeon 
um, bringing the passenger pigeon back from extinction. Mm -hmm. And so part of their project is, um, is a cultural aspect of it too, because, um, because passenger pigeons are, um, they you know, would move in massive flocks and they would you know, migrate you know, from, you know, they would move from like area to area. You know, they, they had a very, very specific way in which they would move around, a very particular sort of like group cultural thing. And so their, their whole plan is like, you know, training band-tailed pigeons into this particular cultural thing and then you know they're all, they yeah, have this okay. a very elaborate plan yeah. to like do that but of course right the idea is that like it's a human you know plot right <laughs> to, to to train these other birds yeah. into a particular culture that then will train like and the you know the and the band-tailed pigeons will actually be be birthing these other birds too because they're you know they're altering band-tailed pigeon genetics to be passenger pigeon genetics, which is their most closely related yeah. species. So it's a very interesting sort of elaborate project, yeah. but they're recognizing the cultural aspect more and oh, more. So, yeah. and I would yeah. say, and I think that's what is interesting too about the shifting knowledge of genomics, I think is just the way in which DNA moves around, I think is, what I think is so fascinating about that is I feel like that does alter the way in which we, we attach an essentialist genetic, right? Like, it's just, it's like, how can you, how can you have an essentialist identity of, right, attached to, like, genes if we're, like, sharing genetics? Yeah. Like, and there's also like, yeah. you know, we now know that like, you know, through like gestation, like mothers will like pass, you know, cells. They call it microchimerism. Mm -hmm. And so like mothers have like cells from their daughters, you know, or their babies, and then, then, then they can pass those to like their other children. And so it's just like, it's crazy stuff. It's like, we're all like each other, like it's all over the place. And it's <laughs> transcorporality, right? You know, it's just, so I just feel like, right, the more we learn, right, about this, it's just like, yeah. there's just no way it can be essentialist in any way. Like, so, so I don't know. So I think, yeah, okay, interesting, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, which is, so I think that's one interesting, fascinating aspect that I've learned. The more that I've been getting into the biotech stuff, the more I think, it's pulling apart right at the seams. I think those those ideas, um, but but yeah, I don't know. That's yeah, just your question. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's it's fascinating, and I yeah. you know I have one of these sort of strategic essentialist moments in which, um, as an environmentalist, I think you know we have to have the concept of species and we have to protect species because otherwise, I don't even know how you proceed. On the other hand. I mean, as you just beautifully articulated, the concept is already just sort of gone in a way. And, and yet it is very, it, it's also very real. Every mm -hmm. species that dies is a very real sort of loss. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's so complicated. And I think you do such a, just such an amazing job of raising these questions and pulling together so much information and making it super clear. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and on that um, very uh, commending note, <laughs> <laughs> that's just a <laughs> <laughs>